0: We're going to read from Luke chapter 19 and uh, starting at verse 28. After Jesus has said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread the cloaks on the road. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day, that would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another." Because you did not recognise the time of God's coming to you. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that as Tim comes to share with us this morning, share what you've put on his heart this morning. Lord, give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. Father, help us to, to go from here, Lord, as well. Lord, putting into action the things that you say to us this morning. Lord, we pray your blessing on Tim now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: Well good morning, can I add my welcome to Andy's? It's a joy to have you with us, particularly if you're here for the first time, it's great to have you here. Um, uh, and just some verses that we were uh, reflecting on a little bit earlier, uh, let me read it to us as we begin. As we continue our series, thinking about what it means to search for stuff in life.
0: Uh,
1: let me read those words from Matthew 11 as Jesus says this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. My sense is this morning there is rest for our souls and for some of us, we need that rest. And this morning, may you find it. May it be so, amen. Do you like going to art galleries? Put your hands up if you like going to art galleries. Yeah, a good few of us. I enjoy going to art galleries. I don't always understand them, uh, but I like going to them. Well, eight years ago, I visited an art exhibition uh, in London uh, that had quite an impact on me. Uh, I found it both very moving and pretty disorientating. It was this one, Blind Light by Anthony Gormley. Anyone else go to that exhibition? They would, Gallery. Brilliant, just me that's cultural, fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was a strange installation in which in a big room was this glass box really that you were invited to go into that was full of light and kind of steam, smoke. Uh, and it was profound because you were invited to go into this box and you were fumbling your way around this box and there was both familiar sounds, the voices of the people that you came with uh, and familiar images as you kind of got close to them and you saw their sort of shadow begun to become clear and then you saw who it was, familiar sounds and spaces and faces and so on And yet at the same time, you were trying to fumble your way round and fumble your way out. And the reason it was both profoundly moving and profoundly disorientated, because it reminded me a little bit of life. (laughs) It really did. That for us, we spend much of our time fumbling our way around and there's familiar things and comforting things and yet at the same time we're trying to work our way forwards and work our way out. And especially as people of the light, if we follow Jesus, the same is true for us. We can sometimes be fumbling our way around, trying to work our way out, trying to put the familiar things in context of the disorientation that is life. And today, we're thinking about searching for hope. Being people who fumble our way around for some glimmer of hope. And my hope and prayer for us is that for those of us in this room right now who need hope, that we may begin to fumble and find something of that hope. And so as we begin, a question for you. What is this? Turn to the person next to you, answer the question, what is this? Introduce yourself to them, if you've not met them, but what is this I've got in my hand? Okay, what is it? Anyone want to offer an idea? Glass half full, okay, let's see, who thinks this is a glass half full of water? Let's show of hands, okay, who thinks it's a glass half empty? One, two, okay, so we are a room full of optimists. Second question then to discuss with your neighbour, what is the difference between hope and optimism? What's the difference between hope and optimism with the same person you've just been speaking with? It's an interesting question to ponder on. A book I've been reading at the moment is called Hope Without Optimism, fascinating book by a Marxist scholar uh, where he interestingly uh, raises that question, what's the difference? One to ponder if you're into that kind of thing, no worries if you're not, it's probably just me. In our culture, we often confuse hope with optimism that hope is about a demeanour. We are a room full of optimists, we've just proven it, apart from one or two of you who are quite proud in your dourness at the moment, no doubt. (laughs) We are a room that that are optimistic and therefore does our culture confuse the two? Because I'm convinced that the scriptures teach that hope is a defining characteristic of Christianity over every other worldview, every other system, that Christianity thinks very differently about hope. The gospel, the good news of Christ, is very specific about hope. And we're gonna keep this verse on the screen throughout this morning. A verse from Psalm 130 that I think gives hints about what hope is. So should we read this out loud together? Let's read this to each other, what the scriptures say about hope together, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits and in his word I put my hope for with the Lord there is unfailing love. May we be people who find hope this morning. Because from that passage in Luke that we read earlier, I think there's five dimensions to Christian hope that are quite important for us to recognise. Five dimensions that make Christian the Christian hope very different. Five dimensions that make the hope of Christ very, very interesting today. And we're gonna do these five things all beginning with the letter W. We're going old school tonight, this morning, uh, just like they used to in the olden days where all the letters had to begin. And the first is this. Hope Christian hope looks weak, Christian hope looks weak. How did the passage begin that we read read from Luke chapter 19? It begins with Jesus getting on a colt, a donkey, not exactly the stallion of a warrior riding to victory. And of course, the people in those days will have known the difference, will have known their Old Testament scriptures where we read in Zechariah chapter nine, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. God's in the business of weakness. Even the king comes riding in lowly. And it reminds us of that passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Throughout the pages of scripture, everybody that God uses is weak. It's always the way with God, Noah was a drunk, Abraham was a lying old man, Jacob was a liar, Moses was a murderer, Gideon was terrified, Samson was a womanizer, Rahab was a prostitute, David was an adulterer and a murderer, on and on and on, weak. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And Peter disowned Jesus with a massive temper on him. Paul has the blood of Christians on his hands. On and on and on, God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God's in that business and so the king, the Messiah, comes riding in on a donkey. I saw once, back in the days when Skodas weren't cool, I saw on the back of a Skoda once a sticker saying, don't laugh, Jesus went by donkey. God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And today of all days, when we hope that the weak, insignificant football club of Leicester City maybe, just maybe, might shame the strong with their billions from the Middle East. May it be so. It's Fascinating isn't it, even the Man Man United manager has said he doesn't want to stop them winning the title today, he just wants to postpone it. (laughs) The truth is the hope of Christ is often ridiculed because it's seen as being powerless but I want to encourage you today that the hope of the gospel is powerful because it is all about weakness. As a quote on Twitter this week, God doesn't want us to be strong, God wants to be our strength. Fascinatingly, last week I was asked by a friend of mine who isn't a follower of Christ. He said to me, Tim, as a church minister, do you find it hard having to give the impression that you've got your life sorted out? And he said in passing, because I could tell them some stories. <laughs> And it was fascinating because it gave me the opportunity to say that for me, one of the most powerful things about the pages of Scripture, one of the most powerful things about the Gospel is that a foundation of being a follower of Christ is knowing that you don't have it all together. That you do not have to pretend. That in fact Jesus gives his most stinging rebukes to those who think they have it all sorted out, those who think they're right. And the sad thing for me as I was chatting with this friend is that he'd never seen that in the life of the churches in which he'd been in. It was all about the decent people with it all together, doing some nice things. We live in a culture of strength where no politician can admit they're wrong, where business leaders can't bear to admit they might have got things wrong for fear of what the investments might do. We live in a culture of defensiveness where any critique has to be battered away because we can't appear weak. Friends, the beauty of the gospel is we are weak. It's okay to be weak. Jesus came on a donkey. As T.S. Eliot said, our lives are mostly a constant evasion of ourselves. No one has it all together. And the moment we are weak and we admit it, we invite people in because they know they are weak too. Come, let me show you a savior who was weak on our behalf. As Edward Shilito said powerfully in this beautiful poem, the other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, Only God's wounds can speak and not a God has wounds but thou alone. Christian hope is weak. But secondly, hope wonders, wonders. The reaction to Jesus on this Cult is clear, verse 35. They brought the cult to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Jesus gets the red carpet treatment, the things reserved for dignitaries, coats on the floor and all that sort of thing because they're marvelling, they're wondering at the miracles they'd seen and who they hope he might be. Could it be he's the one? This rescuer that had been prophesied? And it leads naturally to just wonder and praise as they joyfully praise God. Do you know a survey was done a couple of years ago of some of the fastest growing churches in the world and one of the things that they all had in common amongst a number of different things, amongst many good things, one of the key distinctives was there was a culture of celebration in them because everybody loves a party. There was a discipline to celebrating well. And for these disciples, they knew this Jesus was special and so they were wondering at who he could be, producing that wonder. And for some of us, I guess, in this room right now, we've lost our sense of wonder. Our relationship with God has become a bit familiar and has become more about us than it has wonder at him and about the miracles he has done and the miracles he can do. Maybe for us this morning at the end as we pray It might be an opportunity for us to do business with God and simply say, Lord, please restore the sense of wonder at your great hope. For me, that is certainly true. That in recent years with just stuff of life, the wonder has dimmed and the duty has come to the fore. May it be that God would restore our wonder As Paul Miller says, when you stop trying to control your life and instead allow your anxieties and problems to bring you to God in prayer, you shift from worry to watching. You watch God weave weave his patterns in the story of your life. Instead of trying to be out front designing your life, you realise you are inside God's drama. As you wait, you begin to see him work and your life begins to sparkle with wonder you're learning to trust again. So hope may look weak, but hope wonders. But thirdly, hope waits. As that verse on the screen makes very clear, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. Do you know in the original language of the Old Testament Hebrew, the word for wait and the word for hope are very similar. Hope has something about waiting in it that implies an intention that I choose to wait, I choose to wait. And they've been waiting a long while. Let me read to you Psalm 118 verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and then what do the disciples say on that road? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you see the difference? The Psalm says blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and here in Luke's Gospel blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They've been waiting for decades, or hundreds of years for God's rescuer and now maybe he's here. Blessed is the king. They've been waiting long, waiting long and yet Just a short while later, Jesus is hanging on a cross all alone because they now realize, although they think that maybe he wasn't the king after all, but they should have waited a little bit longer. Can I ask you how you're doing with waiting? I remember when Claire Claire and I were going out just before we got married. And you'd have that moment where you're sending each other lovey-dovey texts, it's probably just us that have done it. And, you know, you send a text that's all very lovey and beautiful and then you wait for the reply. And you wait kind of 10 minutes or so and it still hasn't come and so you get slightly itchy feet. So you wait another ten minutes, still no, not come, and, and you're wondering, and then the hours go by, and did she get it, or, or did was she offended by, it? did I not say the right thing, and should I put a few more kisses, and should I do all this, and then if it goes overnight, goes to the next day, boy, 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 you're eager as soon as you get up, phone, phone, no, no, nothing, and then when it does come, the text, you count how many kisses there are, more than the ones I put, brilliant. Maybe it was just me. (laughs) (laughs) Waiting with expectation for what may be round the corner. Christian hope is about waiting. What's God gonna do next? They knew the miracles Jesus had done. Let's see what he's gonna do. We wait. And as we were just worshiping before uh, together, There was a sense in my heart that um, uh, for some of us, God today may be saying, wait. And for some of us, we're tired of waiting. And we're on the verge of giving up. And today the Lord says, I want to show you my hope so that you can wait and wait. So hope may look weak, hope does wonder, hope waits. But then beautifully, fourthly, hope weeps. Verse 41, some of the most profound words I think. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. There's two things to say about that weeping. And the first is, do you notice? Jesus has a posture of compassion, not condemnation. That word "wept," weeping actually means sobbing, wailing, not just the kind of tear trickling down his cheek. Deep, gutsy, earthy, sobbing over this city. Not out of condemnation and anger, but out of compassion for them. Much like a parent watching a child make a foolish mistake, Jesus mourns a city that is sealing its fate. I think this is powerful. We live in a culture, don't we, of condemnation. In our public space, we have to destroy the other people, not just their argument. We have to discredit people's character to win an argument. We don't have a culture of compassion in our culture, do we? Whereas Jesus doesn't condemn, he is compassionate. But secondly, this weeping, it reveals something, doesn't it? About the life of Christ and the place of lament in his life. That it was entirely appropriate, dare I say it, entirely necessary for people to be weeping over a city that is broken and desperate. As pages and pages and pages in the Psalms and throughout cry out, how long, Lord? And as one author says, I think this is a challenge for us as churches Glenn Pemberton writes, I'm concerned for well-intended churches whose assemblies of praise and triumph only know how to pray for and celebrate healing, but ignore the chaos raging all around them. Must it be that because we affirm that God reigns, we have to pretend that everything must be okay or will be soon? Our contemporary praise assemblies are less likely due to courageous faith and more about fear and acquiescence to a culture that does not want to acknowledge or experience the disorientation of life. He writes, it's not those who lack faith who lament but those recognized for strong faith who bring their most honest and passionate feelings to God. Jesus wept. And it was fascinating, I don't know if you've seen it. There's been a video launched this week uh, in di- with a discussion between Bono, the lead singer of U2, in discussion with Eugene Peterson, who's the author, wrote the message and all that, all about the Psalms. Go to YouTube, just Google Bono, Eugene Peterson, you'll get it, 20 minutes long, brilliant, worth watching. But in it, Bono says something fascinating. As a global rock star, talking about our contemporary Christian worship scene. He says, Why I'm suspicious of Christians is because of this lack of realism. I'd like to see more of it in the art, in life, and in music, he says. Fascinating. Hope weeps. Why? Because fifthly and finally, because we know that hope wins. Verse 42. As Jesus is weeping with compassion over this city, he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. Some startling words that Jesus is predicting that came true. You see, in AD 66, Jerusalem rebelled against the Roman Empire, trying to break free on their own strength. And as a result, the Roman Empire completely destroyed Jerusalem. So that Josephus, the Jewish historian, said of Jerusalem afterwards, no one would ever believe that the spot had been inhabited. That is destruction. Jesus was proved to be right. Siding with Jesus may look weak, but he wins. That is the testimony of the scriptures. This is the difference between hope and optimism, friends. Optimism is just a good feeling that maybe things will work out all right. Hope is rational, trusting, and hoping that the future will work for good. And that's why the last book of the Bible is so important. The book of Revelation with all its complexity, with all its imagery that is quite bamboozling at times, let me read to you these words which are some of the most hope-filled and dare I say it, wonderful words ever written. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And it's no wonder then that the very last prayer in the Bible is what? Three words, come Lord Jesus. Because hope wins. And so therefore in the middle of battle, in the middle of pain, in the middle of uncertainty, in the middle of ill health, in the middle of weakness, in the middle of temptation, in the middle of frailty, in the middle of depression, in the middle of life throwing itself at us. We can stand firm because hope wins. Hope wins. And therefore, friends, we can be people who wait. For with the Lord, there is unfailing love. May we be people who are full of hope in the reality, the uncertainty of life. Let's be hope-filled people for the glory of God. Shall we pray together? Please, please stand if you're able to. I guess for some of us, um, our prayer is a simple one. Lord, I want to hope again. In the stillness, you may like to simply, in your own heart, pray that. For others of us, it may be wanting to wonder again. We've lost that wonder. And even now, God's Spirit is doing work in our lives please restore that wonder, Lord. And for some of us, we've had our head lifted this morning. We don't need to pretend anymore. We, we know we're weak. And therefore we find a, an ally, a brother in Christ. The humble king, the weak. One riding on a donkey. And for others of us, that message of waiting, is something we struggle with. Please, Lord, would you help us to wait well, clinging, as we heard earlier, not to the dazzling lights of this world, but to the true, certain hope of Christ. Help us, we pray. For the glory of Christ, we ask. Amen.